Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. I'm not one for physical confetti or streamers, but imaginary paper showering down from above? Ha <laughs> ha, yeah. This is episode number 100. Whoa, 100? 100. Yo, yo, awesome human at the other end of the sound waves. Thank you for listening in to a verbal celebration of 100 episodes of Smart and Simple Matters. Sweet, sassy, molassy. That is a sweet number, eh? And it's all possible because you, you cared enough to listen, share, and take action on the past 99 episodes of the show. We take a bow for me. Just just a real quick one. Just take a bow for me. I think you deserve it. This episode, this nice, round, pleasant-feeling numero 100 is all about you. You, the individual that makes creating these episodes worthwhile, and just as important, you, the community that's come to think of Smart and Simple Matters as a constant source of inspiration, verbal connection, and uh, some silliness mixed in. I have to admit, deciding what kind of episode to do for number 100, it was challenging. Now, I have a groovy friend, Ellen Watkins. She suggested that I do a highlight episode of Lessons Learned from the First 99, some of the best snippets of the show. I thought, ah, that sounds, that sounds neato, but I wasn't sure how to pull that off without it sounding a bit self-indulgent, a wee bit self-absorbed. So I also toyed with a curated recap of episodes 51 through 99, like I did in episode 50, when I curated the previous 49 episodes, 1 through 49. But I got to tell you, curating, it just it's not my jam as much these days, and the idea, it just wasn't calling to me. So then I have an idea. I thought, Zeslovsky, how about... An episode celebrating the spirit of community and the awesome community of folks who dig this Smart and Simple Matters dealio. Zeslovsky, I responded, you know, since my inner dialogue apparently likes to refer to myself as myself, itself, by my, our last name, whatever. Uh, I said, you got yourself a darn rootin', tootin', kitten, kabootin', fine idea there, laddie. So that's what we're going to do help you get more awesome at appreciating, participating, and creating community. Because if there's one thing I know, well, I know a few things, but if there's one thing I know right now, feeling empowered, embraced, understood, conjuring up new alternatives, new possibilities, that is everybody's idea of a good time. I'm going to forgo my typical shout-outs this time because I want this episode to be about you, the community, not necessarily you, the fantastic person smiling right now. You're smiling, aren't you? Yeah, I'm smiling. Ready to give someone a massive glitter explosion? Assuming that's your kind of thing. Imaginary glitter explosions, right? Like, don't actually do that to somebody. That's kind of rude. Okay, so why even bother? Why focus on the concept of community and celebrate the sweet bejesus out of it with me? Well, for starters, community is a really giant, honking, big freaking deal. I think that was enough superlatives there. It's where most of us get our sense of belonging. It's how you and I feel connected to something greater than ourselves. Regardless of our sex, politics, ethnicity, religion, nationality, anything else we might not share— when we're in community together, we are one. We are one people. We are part of the same crew. Even if it's temporary, maybe it's fleeting, but community is about bringing people together to co-create, to share a sense of ownership of something big, to believe in possibilities that were previously impossible and to make some of those impossibilities a reality. Now, 
what do I mean when I use the word community? Because I'm going to be talking about community a lot. I actually explored this recently on my pal Jeff Sanquist's wonderful Intentionally Wandering podcast. I'm going to link to it in the show notes once he publishes our episode, probably in late May 2016. That chat was deep and delightful. But Jeff asked me, he says, Joel, what does community mean to you? And I love this kind of question. I love asking this kind of question, like, what does simple living mean to you? What does insert whatever's important mean to you? And before I can answer that, I had to offer some definitions since it's a different experience depending on who you are or what the context is. So one of them, you know, my favorite online community resource, Rich Millington over at feverbee.com. That dude is awesome. So Rich thinks of community, this is kind of clinical, but he defines it as three or more people who share a common interest, meet in a designated space, and build relationships with one another. I mean, sure, you're nodding your head like, yeah, yeah, that, that may be accurate. Not exactly so motivating. Alternatively, we've got John McKnight and Peter Block. They explain in their great book, The Abundant Community, as community being something that occurs outside of systems and institutions. So a place that is an experience, it's both an experience, I'm sorry, um, and a sense of connectedness. With that, I feel we're getting a bit closer to a good meaning of community, but we're, we're not quite there. So for me, I'm just going to tell you what's going on in my brain right now. Community means that people are most satisfied when we're building something together or when we're investing in someone else. It's messy. It's inefficient. There are misunderstandings. People are late. It can be frustrating, but we're with, we're somewhere Digitally or physically, we're with a certain people that we self-identify with. Uh, Community really at its core, at its heart, is about feeling like you belong. That I'm related to a group, a place in nature. I'm never isolated, even when there's nobody physically around me. Because I know that if I need to, I can whisper, whether it's into a microphone, whether it's into a phone, whether it's to my neighbor. I can yell. If I need help, someone's not only going to hear me, but they're going to be compelled to assist me because we're in community, because we belong together. And that I'm going to do the same thing for you if you're in community with me or anyone else in a given community. That means I'm a creator. I'm a co-creator. I'm a co-owner when I'm in community. And that feels marvelous. This concept of community that I'm talking about It's been shaped by a number of blog posts, TED Talks, podcast episodes, books I've read over the past five years or so. And if you want a jumping off point to explore community in a curated way, I could easily give you an all-star list of people to pay attention to. So just off the top of my head, we've got Sash Milne, who I spoke with in episode 77 of Smart and Simple Matters. She has been known to say wise things. One of my favorites is she says, a community is a place where the desire to share is greater than the desire to own. Then there's Cecile Andrews, who doubles as a prime source of simplicity inspiration, who I joyfully chatted with in episode 55. She was telling me things like, when people experience being cared for, they are able to care too. If they can care for their own species, maybe they will care for the rest of the species on this planet. And then there are people who I will never know, I could only hope to know someday. Well, people like Ralph Waldo Anderson, I I can't know him. He's kind of dead and all. But uh, Ralph over there, he says that people are lenses through which we read our own minds. I totally believe that. I understand myself so much better when I'm community with others, when I'm talking with other people, and they can reflect me back to me. In other words, if you want to know yourself, engage meaningfully with other people. There's other ways to do it. Solitude, meditation, there's so many other self-awareness ways, but being in community can be a significant shortcut to knowing yourself. And then most recently, I become enamored with these two guys I was talking about before, John McKnight and Peter Block, especially Peter Block, uh, and two books about community that I humbly suggest are must-reads if you care about the topic. The first one I already mentioned, it's called The Abundant Community. The second one, which is going to be the focus of this episode, is called Community, 
The Structure of Belonging. Links to those two books are in the show notes at joelzaslowski.com slash S-A-S-M-1-0-0, just like all the other resources I've mentioned and will be mentioning coming up. I must say, Block and McKnight, they do glorify the role of community in our lives. It's not the end-all, be-all, um, but especially at the local level, you know, they acknowledge the downsides to being community-oriented, and there are a number of downsides. You know, for instance, they explain that having self-chosen order, community-driven order, the community way, it's kind of freaking hard sometimes, a lot of times. Communities, they're this inherently inefficient thing. They aren't designed or created to be efficient, like systems or institutions are. And as these two guys say, the question is, are we willing to live with some failure? That the banner didn't get put up, that the newsletter was sent out three days late, and so on. Are we living to live with some failure in service of keeping people connected and accountable for fulfilling their own desires? Voluntary connections. Similar to voluntary simplicity, it's designed to create fulfillment over efficiency. Systems, institutions, they aren't designed to be satisfying. They're only designed to be efficient. Well, there are exceptions, of course, but if productivity and low-cost results, if that's your thing, if that's our main purpose in life, the community way will frustrate the heck out of us. I mean, who gives a flying flip? about community if you're focused on results and productivity and driving costs down and accomplishment and giant goals. It really, if nothing gets accomplished or decided, when you're together, when you come together, if nothing happens, happens, like the goal of coming together is to produce tangible outputs. If nothing happens until the last 10 minutes of your gathering, that's the price of living in community. There's so much more that's built that you can't see, that you feel later on. And Block, there's one more thing I want to note. Block also notes in his book, Community, that some of the reasons for discounting the power of community, they're legit. Uh, Most of the time when citizens are coming together, when people in a neighborhood are coming together, it doesn't make a difference because they're operating under a model that's based on potentially retribution. It's all about define, let's define the problem. Let's find fault with what we think is wrong. Let's cast blame and shame. Let's figure out what we're scared of and then build that up. Let's find some kind of control-oriented action that we can all agree to that's going to make us feel good but won't actually lead to the future possibility that we want. Let's point to our leaders. Let's let them decide. Let's let them choose where we go, instead of ordinary folks like me and you, owning our own destiny, co-creating something together. So in other words, community doesn't work when you only come together when you're pissed off. That's important to remember. I'd like us to look at community in a different way, though, a way similar to what Block writes about in Community, the Structure Belonging. I'm going to give you a cool case study of what it looks and feels like to put these principles into practice in a moment. But first, Consider the underlying spirit of community. From Block's view, he says that community is about the experience of belonging, and I totally agree with that. We, you and I, you and someone else, whoever it is, we are in community each time we find a place where we belong. To belong, what does that mean? To belong is to be related to and a part of something. To not belong is to feel isolated and always an outsider. You're always on the margin in all ways. To belong, it also has to do with being an owner. To act, I'm, ta- I'm using these words. You can tell Block's got to me. I'm, I'm using similar language here, which he's very intentional about. To act as a creator, as a co-owner of a community. Because if you own it, if you're a stakeholder in it, if you give a damn, you will help build it. You will help nurture it because it's yours. It belongs to you. And the hard work is to facilitate in our communities a wider and deeper sense of emotional ownership and accountability. That in itself is a whole episode. But finally, I just want to touch on real quick, belonging, there's a third way to think about it. It can, belonging, Think. It, listen to that word for a moment, belonging. It can also be thought as a longing to be 
Community can be this container where your longing can be fulfilled. If you're going to be a member of community, a better word here might be citizen of community, someone who's committed to the well-being of the whole. Maybe that's a city block. Maybe it's a larger neighborhood. It could be a whole country. I mean, heck, it could even be the entire earth if you're in the whole global citizen mindset. Then you're responsible to actively, actively cultivate the future. You don't wait. You don't beg. You don't dream for the future. And really, there's this great part. Block gets on a roll. He's describing the antithesis of being a citizen as making the choice to be a consumer or a client. Because consumers and clients, they're giving their power away when they believe that their own needs can be best satisfied by the actions of systems and institutions, people like elected officials, top management, even some social service providers, or heck, the shopping mall. I mean, that's not to say... There's absolutely a role for politics and corporations and social services and retailers in the world. There is. But where are you getting your support? Where are you getting your support right now today? Where are you getting your sense of belonging? Are you getting it from that smiling neighbor who helps you when your sink floods your home? Or are you getting it from the plumber who only sees you as a paycheck? So once we find the right community, and we're engaging with the people in it for the right reasons, what are the questions we could be asking each other to create a powerful, self-sufficient alternative future? That's really what I want to focus on here. What are the questions we could be asking each other to create a powerful, self-sufficient alternative future? Now, if you listen to Block, he says that the answers to the traditional questions that we pose to each other when we're in community of, hey, (laughs) I've drawn from a ton, and I still do, But those support the mindset that an alternative future, it can be negotiated, uh, it can be mandated, it can be engineered, it can be controlled into existence. All we got to do, baby, all we got to do, we just got to double down on what's already working or what we feel will work. We just need to give it enough time and resources. The problem with that, there's a hidden agenda in these questions. And that's to maintain dominance of whoever is in power, whoever the leader is. That's to maintain someone's version of what right is. So here are some examples so you can wrap your head around a little bit more. You can nod your head as well if you agree. But these are some questions that do have relevance, but maybe not a lot of power to create the possibility, the future that we're looking for. We got things like, how do we get people to show up and be committed? How do we get people to come on board and do the right thing? How do we hold these people accountable as opposed to how do we get them to hold themselves accountable? How do we get others to buy into our vision as if our vision is the right vision, the best vision? How do we get those people to change? And then last for now, how do we find and develop better leaders as if that's the only thing that's missing between us and what we want? Now, Do you feel like the context of these questions, do you feel like they're designed to engineer, mandate, control things into existence? I got to tell you over here, I'm starting to believe it more and more. What I'd like you to consider, alternatively, there are questions that have the power to make a difference. They're ones that engage people in an intimate way. They confront you with your freedom, with your sense of liberation, They invite you to co-create a future possibility. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the answers are. It doesn't even matter if you answer them or if you verbally say, I refuse to answer your question, sir. Just asking these questions, they have a powerful impact and the potential in them is huge. So to block, a great question has three qualities. Again, if you want to nod your head along, if you agree with any of these, go for it. I'm not expecting you to just be like, yep, yep, get it, got it, I'm on board. I want you to question these questions and the context around them. So three attributes to a great question. One, it's ambiguous. There's no attempt to precisely define what you mean by the question or how someone should interpret it. So in other words, a great question requires each person to bring their own personal meaning to it. Second, it's personal. Personal. 
passion, commitment, connection, those things grow out of things that are most personal to us. And third, a great question evokes anxiety. Block claims that all that matters to us makes us anxious, not in the clinical sense of anxiety, but our desire to escape from a general sense of anxiety or acute, if we feel it, if we're really challenged, our desire to escape, it's stealing our aliveness. And if there's no edge to the question, then there's little or no power to it. So what do you think of all that? A great question. It's ambiguous. It's personal. It evokes anxiety. I'll tell you what I think based on using some of his questions in personal conversations and actually did a couple of cool case studies facilitating community discussions about community at my recent Simple Rev local and Live Your Legend local gatherings. And yes, I know if you've been listening for a while, you're like, oh, how meta of you, Joel. You're discussing community in community. Oh, that's so like you. Imagine this. It's Minneapolis-St. Paul. It's cool. It's March. I am at Jeff Sandquist's apartment complex. He is our Simple Rev local host. He's also providing the venue for us to come together around Simple Living. To my left, I've got Anthony Ongaro of Break the Twitch, a great pal of mine. There's other people who I know who have been in community with me for years now. They are awesome. I know they can handle anything I throw at them. There's new folks as well. Some people who are self-described as a little bit tentative about this whole Simple Rev thing. They are introverted and maybe not used to being challenged verbally or pushed or having intense questions thrust upon them right away. But we're sitting together in a circle because a good community, if you can, will sit in a circle. That's where belonging happens the best. We can all see each other. And I'm giving them the context. I've just wrapped up reading Community, Block's book, and I'm telling them that we're going to be doing these exercises together. Some of them may be rather uncomfortable. I'm going to be walking them through a series of discussions, a series of questions about possibility, ownership, dissent, gifts, how we invite people to be in community with us. And people are looking at me like, oh, okay, okay, I think, I think maybe I'm on board theoretically, but don't test me, Joel. Don't mess with me. Don't push me too far. I have to tell you, it worked out fantastically. Not because I'm some kind of expert facilitator or anything, but just because people understood why we were talking, like in community, why we were talking about community. How often does that happen? How often do you come together and talk about what it means to belong, what it means to feel a sense of community and a sense of belonging? So with that in mind and with the success from there, I actually facilitated the same exercise uh, a couple weeks later at my local Live Your Legend gathering where I host with uh, Lynn and Josh over at the Lighthouse in Minneapolis. They provide the venue. Awesome people, by the way. And I did the same kind of thing. There were nine people there, I believe. Some of them are friends. Some of them were new. They didn't even know what Live Your Legend was before coming in here. They certainly weren't ready for deep questions about community. I didn't force anyone to answer each of these questions. Just a, a gorgeous setting of just warm, vulnerable, intimate, all the things that you could hope for when you come together. That was the physical environment which prepared us to mentally, intellectually, and emotionally get deep with each other. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually talk you through uh, block. There's six meaningful conversations that we can have as a community. So it starts with the language that we use in our invitation to gather, how that invitation is presented, what we define as the possibility for the gathering, and making very clear that a no, a refusal to join, it carries no cost to the invited. And what he means by that, what I mean by that is in an authentic community, citizens, members, whatever you want to call them, people who want that, who are in that, they get to decide each time, every single time, whether or not to show up. Now, of course, it makes a difference. Sometimes it makes a huge difference if certain people don't show up or if you don't get to X number of people. But we keep inviting our community, even people who have never joined before, even people who are strangers, we keep inviting them again and again without consequences. They're always welcome. 
It's just like with your family and friends. You wouldn't stop inviting your mom to come have dinner with you if she told you two times in a row, oh, sorry, sorry, honey, uh, I got other stuff that's going on. You would keep saying, mom, come over for dinner. I love you. I want to make good food for you and be with you. So if you volunteered in a community setting before, you know that this approach constantly inviting people back, never knowing how many people are going to show up or what kind of mental space they're going to be in if they show up, that can frustrate the sweet bejesus out of you. I know that very well. Um, You never know for sure if they're going to show up until they actually show up because RSVPs, they do not mean a darn thing sometimes. And honestly, that kind of makes me mad. Why RSVP to something? Why say yes and then not show. And not only not show, but not clarify why you didn't show or make any attempt to communicate that this thing came up. I don't get that, but whatever. The freedom of choice to show up or not without consequences, though, that if you give people that, if they understand that, that is a source of power. Because you know that if someone freely decides to show up, that means something. That means something more. And if no is not an option, if you're not giving people the okay to say no, then it's not an invitation. So after the initial invitation conversation is made, we can have five more conversations as a group within community together. I'm not sure that it's really just limited to five. I'm going to go through the five remaining from the book, Community. I'm not going to ask all the questions in the book for each of the conversations and then answer them. I will answer them in the context of how I feel. I've already talked about Simple Rev, and you've heard me talk about it on the show before if you've been listening for a while. I feel I want to talk about how I feel about the Simple Rev community as if you and I were at a Simple Rev local gathering. If you're not sure what that is, they are free, intimate local gatherings to help you do simplicity your way, at your speed, and with your people. I'll give you a representative sample of questions so you can get a feel for how this might work for you in one of your communities. Let's start with the possibility conversation. To lay the groundwork here, the challenge with possibility is that it gets confused with goals, predictions, optimism, Goals, predictions, optimism, those things don't actually create anything. They just might make your world or the world at large a little better. It might give you a little smile, a, la- a big laugh, a hit of happiness for a moment. But possibility, though. Possibility is different. Possibility, it's not just simply a dream. Because dreaming, it's pleasant. It can be great sometimes, actually. But dreaming makes us an observer. It makes us an innocent bystander. And possibility, it creates something new. Personally, I love, love declarations. And that's why I, back in the value of simple days, I created the value of simple declaration. Uh, that's why Simple Rev has a declaration, which you can see at simplerev.com slash declaration. Possibility, uh, making a declaration of some kind of vibrant, radically alive future that we could choose to live, that we can choose to lean into Possibilities power, it's really in the act of declaring it, unlike, um, say, creating a vision, which I love visions. Uh, according to Block, though, visions, they're part of problem-solving mentality. Don't really agree with him there. But he's right that a vision is something that you have to wait for to see to become real. And it's normally followed by goal setting and practical steps to make the vision a reality. Yeah, I can get on board with that. So, Let's go into some questions that we would ask in community to discover new possibilities. So the first one is, what is the crossroads you're at relative to why we're gathered here? Again, I'm going to answer this in the context as if you and I were at a Simple Rev local gathering. So what is the crossroads you're at relative to why we're gathered here? You know, I got to this point of bringing people together around Simple Living because I believe that community-powered simplicity has the ability to transform our local communities, to transform our global narrative in ways that individually-oriented simplicity does not. I'll leave it at that for now. Another question, what declaration of possibility can you make that has the power to transform the community and inspire you? That is a big one. 
Uh, allow me to elaborate a little bit here. So back in my blogging days, circa June 2015, I actually answered this question in a blog post on joelsislowski.com. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. But I wrote that, especially with Simple Rev Local, which is now our primary way of helping people gather around and spread simple living, I declared it was possible that hundreds of towns, cities, and regions, they can have their own free, recurring, and local simple living gatherings. They don't need permission. They don't need a whole lot of resources. It's a possibility where people don't even need the internet to connect and participate. I mean, imagine that in our wired world, huh? But I also want you to imagine. Imagine thousands of people in hundreds of small in-person groups. They are all dedicated to recreating a simple world. And why? Because your home turf, that's where you can make the biggest difference. You do it through deep connections to people in your environment. You have the conversations where talk fuels action. Action creates change and change ignites a new narrative about what's possible. In part, we do this with local hosts. They're giving training, tools, and a flexible framework to organize these simple living focused gatherings. You know, there are Well, all cultures adore storytelling, but some are more fond than others. So maybe one group out in Wellington, New Zealand, one culture adores storytelling. So they weave stories into and out of all the conversations that they have. They talk about breaking consumerism shackles. They embrace inner contentment. And you get some slaps on the back. Yeah, attaboy, right on, lady. These are the kinds of things that I'm declaring is possible. Yeah, another group in Portland, Oregon, they're all about the practical how-to of meditation or yoga to focus their thoughts, to tame your emotions. Uh, monthly workshops, maybe they're all about workshops. They become central. They're all participant-led. They're all participant-driven. That's the language of community. We are participants. We don't attend. We participate actively. We're engaging even the shyest person, even the most highly sensitive person, they believe that. Um, you got another crowd. They're in Tokyo. They're inspiring. They're flawed, fantastically flawed, but they're self-aware. They might bow. They might hug. They share group activities between gatherings. They have a closing gratitude ritual that feels like a Thanksgiving meal with all the smiles. You know, the structure, of course, it's important. You got fun pictures and silly videos. Simple Revers like having fun. Um, Friendships, they are deep. They're potentially lifelong. Each of these local groups, they have their own vibe based on their culture, based on the host personality, based on the people who are gathered at that specific gathering, how frequently they have, whatever their traditions are. And the impact, it starts small. Maybe someone tries out permaculture here. Maybe someone builds a tiny house there. And then, then the good stuff happens, right? I'm still declaring possibility here. This is all possible. Then these concentric circles begin to ripple out. The next town over, the next city over, the next region beside them, they notice uh, the simple rev thing, that it's inspired and community run. They set up an aquaponics farm. And then the next town over, they get in on it too. They come over and they're like, how'd you do that? That's pretty rad. I want to learn how to do that too. So, Monthly gatherings become every other week, and maybe they become every week. And there's always cross-pollination of ideas, connections, always, always, always action. Talk that leads to action. So eventually, these waves, these ripples of sustainability, compassion, they're lapping at the shores of every continent. This community-oriented spirit, it it takes to the wind, (laughs) and it brings mindful, slow living everywhere. Now, now the small bubbles of each group are huge. They're overlapping. And Simple Revers from Tokyo seek out Simple Revers in Nairobi and Johannesburg when they travel. Distant communities, they're engaging with each other online and they're sharing best practices on how to homestead, why minimalism is so fulfilling, and what they do in their local gatherings. Now, I know you've got excited, Joel, this episode. Woo, look out. But (laughs) the undercurrents, they're the same everywhere. You know, all these folks who are into the intersection of community building and simple living, they're all united by an intentional life. They're all driven to stop comparing, to stop competing so much, 
to start being more generous, to lead with generosity. People, they're humble, but they realize that they have power at the same time. And it just starts with one host in each area who decides that he or she needs, they're compelled to bring people together around simple living. I'm declaring that possibility. I mean, can you feel how happy people would be? How how happy you might be to have others who believe what you do at the local level? I mean, can you imagine the joy of consistently being in community, belonging with people who get you, who don't want you to justify why you do all that crazy stuff you do? I just, I picture someone waking up from their autopilot, consumption-driven lifestyle, just like I used to have, and learning how to reclaim their ancestral birthright to have a simple life. Each supportive local gathering is getting us one step closer to a community and eventually a society that we can all be proud of. It's small groups, small commitments, small actions. They're all building up to something bigger. And local communities, that's where people feel like they truly belong. Simple living, it can become the default again. It can become our default way of being. That's what we get. That's what I declare is possible. That was a long answer to a brief question. (laughs) But to wrap up the conversation, the questions on possibility, Block says there are really two overarching questions that point to the future, but we can't ask them directly. I'd actually like to ask these directly, and I probably will. But he says in typical environments, they can't be answered in a meaningful way because base levels of trust or understanding, you can't assume that you have those. But two more questions for possibility What do we want to create together that would make the difference? The second one is, what can we create together that we can't create alone? That question right there, what can we create together that we can't create alone? That drives just about everything that I do. Okay, this next core conversation will be a little bit shorter. These are questions for ownership of community for accountability, uh, at some point, you have to get to an essential question upon which accountability hinges. The sense of ownership, the stakeholder feel, it all hinges and needs to be asked, hopefully after you establish trust and connection with some of these other core conversations. The first question is, what have I done to contribute to the very thing I complain about or want to change? Because if I don't see my part in causing the past, in being a participant in the present, then there's no way that I can meaningfully participate in being a co-creator of the future. Now, from a simple rep perspective, I was horribly guilty of consumerism, of not leading an intentional life, of basically doing everything that's the antithesis of what simple rev represents, <laughs> not being grateful, not being content, uh, just driving for money and valuing that over pretty much everything else. There are a lot of story-based questions around ownership. Like, what's your story? So here's one. What's the story you keep telling about the problems of this community? The one that you're wedded to and maybe even take part of your identity from. I think I've said this before, but the problem I keep telling myself about the Simple Rev community is that people who love simple living don't necessarily want to do it in community. If you're a homesteader, You got your family and you're self-sufficient. You don't necessarily need a community. If you're meditating, you don't need to do it in a group. You can do that by yourself. If you're building a tiny house, why do you need to rally the small town to come around you to help build it? You could probably do it by yourself or you could do it with another partner. That's something that I keep telling myself is that maybe people don't want to be in community around simple living as much as I think that they do. I believe that they do. I believe that they could benefit from. What are the payoffs you receive from holding on to this story? You know, for example, if this story were right, if I was in control of the story, um, what payoffs would I get from it? Well, <laughs> frankly, I would probably do less simple rev stuff if um, I, if that attachment to the story, if I learned that it was true, that there was something irrevocable about it, that uh, I couldn't reconcile my personal beliefs 
and a lot of other people's beliefs who have got their fingerprints on Symbol Rev already if I couldn't reconcile it with the world at large, with other local communities. And then finally, what's your attachment to this story costing you? I've got this narrative in my head, and I repeat it. Uh, Not just to myself, but I repeat it to others. Maybe I'm convincing other people who could insanely benefit from belonging, from being in community. Maybe I'm convincing them that they don't need us, that they don't need it. And deep inside of me, I know that that's not true. Now comes what I feel is the trickiest and most counterintuitive conversation that we can have in community, the dissent conversation. Uh, As we get into this conversation about dissent, it begins by a baseline, allowing people in your community the space to say no. Everything rests on the belief that if we can't say no, then our yes has no meaning. I'm going to say it again because it's super important. If we can't say no, then our yes has no meaning. Each of us, we need the chance to express our doubts and reservations without having to justify them, without having to move into problem-solving mode, either our own or helping having others think that we have a problem. No, that word, no, that's the beginning of the conversation for commitment to being committed to a community. I really like the nuance that Block gives as he talks about the fear that we all have that if we allow people to dissent, if we allow them to say no, that we're going to make things more negative by making room for refusal. People say no. It's not creating their dissent. It's only expressing it. Restorative community, which block contrasts with retributive community. I don't know how to say that word. You get what I'm talking about. Um, restorative community, it's that place where saying no It's not going to cost us our membership in the meeting or in the community. When we're engaging those who say no, we want them to stay. We want them to speak up. We need their voice. It's when we fully understand what people don't want that their choice becomes possible. So really, if we think about it in a different way, dissent, saying no, refusing to even answer a question, it's life-giving. It's life-affirming. It's the refusal to live the life that someone else has in mind for us. Now, the challenge here, and this, this is a biggie, the challenge here is to frame the dissent questions in a way that evokes authentic dissent. That's tough. We want to avoid denial. So we don't want to ask people whether they think there is a problem or even ask them to define the problem. We don't want to ask people what they're going to do. I've been guilty of that. I don't know, guilty is probably the wrong word. I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to ask people, so what are you going to do as a result of being here, as a result of being gathered? But we want to avoid rebellion. We want to stop trying to sell or control the world into being. Uh, when we're faced with rebellion at the individual level, at the community level, all we can do, we just got to recognize it. We can't argue with it. I'm going to get to the dissent questions in a moment, but there's a little more important nuance, context, that is important to talk about. We got to deal with denial, rebellion, and resignation. Denial means that we're acting as if the present, this very moment, is not good enough. So, for instance, some really smart people, some really powerful people, deny that climate change is human made or that the destruction of the environment is even happening. Denial in this case, it takes the form, they say, we want more data, we need more time to think. We believe that even if this is happening, technology is some kind of a god that can surmount any obstacle. It's agreeing that there's a problem, but then it's trivializing it. And it's trivializing the existence or the cost of dealing with that issue. Rebellion, on the other hand, that's a little bit more complex than denial. So rebellion is rarely a call for transformation or a new narrative. Sometimes it's just a complaint that others are in control of the purse strings. They have the power. They have the status, the prestige. They have the decision-making capabilities, and we don't. I know this next part is controversial. I don't know where I land on it yet, but I wanted to offer it up to you so you can consider it. Block states that the community form of rebellion is protest. And he says that protest is noble. We've been doing it for thousands of years But rebellion still often keeps us in a perpetual state, in a state of reaction to the viewpoints of others. 
there's a, there's safety in building an identity and what we don't want, but does that actually change the things in the way that we do want? And the way that he sees it, he argues that the real problem with rebellion is that <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, let's rebel. Let's protest. I've been part of it too, and I get it. But are you ta- is it avoiding taking responsibility? Are you on your high horse? Are you on the high ground on your high horse when you're rebelling? Is it fueled by righteous indignation? Maybe you are giving legitimacy to casting blame and shame. Uh, maybe it's, it, it can even be just, just delightful escape from being accountable yourself. Now, if that's true, I can see why rebellion is so popular around the world, both today and in the past, because it's fun. It feels like you're accomplishing something. Sometimes you're not. The third challenge to authentic dissent is resignation. And this one, this one is insidious. Resignation. It is almost the ultimate act of powerlessness and a stance that you declare against possibility. It's a passive attempt to control and to feel, you know, when people are resigning, what they're really resigning from is a future, any future other than what is currently happening. They're embracing the past as if they have no choice. So if you remember nothing else from this episode, consider remembering this. This is courtesy of Block. None of us is strong enough to carry the dead weight of others' resignation or our own. None of us is strong enough to carry the dead weight of others' resignation or our own. Resignation alienates us. It destroys community. It's a spiritual source of isolation. It's really, it's the antithesis of belonging. And oftentimes, resignation, it's going to present itself as if data and experience were on its side. Okay, so on to the questions about dissent, complete with me continuing my simple rev case study from my perspective around the questions. These generally go from easiest to hardest, although they all seem kind of tough to me, which I guess is the mark of a good question, eh? First up, what doubts and reservations do you have about, insert whatever the community is, in this case, it's simple rev. Oh, I've got a lot of doubts. <laughs> Not so many reservations, but a lot of doubts. And I'm allowed to say them. I'm allowed to dissent from something that even I believe in and I love. I doubt that it can grow enough to be self-sustaining. I doubt that people want to take ownership of it enough to decentralize it as quickly as I would hope that it would be. That people want to be real stakeholders. That people want Simple Rev Local as much as I feel like they would benefit from it. There's more, uh, but I'm going to move on. Another question, what is the no or refusal that you keep postponing? I guess until recently, uh, the no that I was postponing, it was the refusal to cancel our annual Simple Rev event, despite the sometimes eh, chilly response from our community about our events in 2014 and 2015. Um, But we canceled Simple Rev 2016 about a month ago, and we don't have any more events planned for right now. I'm glad that we didn't postpone that no. Um, People don't want it as much as other things right now. Uh, Another question. What resentment do you hold that people need to know about? That's a biggie. Uh, I actually covered this one pretty dang well in episode 81. I'll link to it in the show notes. It's called How Rich I Am, What Angers Me, and the Mess I'm Withholding from You. I won't repeat it here. But just to kind of lead into the next conversation about commitment, I want you to consider one more thing about dissent. And really, when you think about it from Block's perspective, which I'm thinking about it from the similar perspective now, nothing kills democracy or transformation faster than lip service. He says that future does not die from opposition. It disappears in the face of lip service. It comes in the form of people saying, oh, I'll try, I'll give it a shot, you know, why, why not? It's, uh, it's an agreement that you're making with one foot out the exit door. And you can move forward with a community that dissents. You can move forward with no's and refusal. You can't move forward with a maybe. You can't move forward with a, eh, sure, I'll try. I'll give it a shot. All right, so far we've discussed the conversation on invitation, possibility, ownership, and dissent. Now we're going to get into commitment. Let's lead with this. Promises. Promises? Yeah. We like it when people keep the promises. 
Promises have a sacred feeling to them. They're the means by which we're accountable to each other. And we become accountable the moment we make them public. So if you can ask your community to make promises to each other in public, that is powerful. And there's even a note. People who say, I'm willing to make no promise at this moment, that's totally cool. Totally fine. We want to encourage that as well. It's really a commitment of another kind. It's basically saying, hey, I pass. And that's an act of refusal that we can all accept. So the questions around the conversation for commitment. The first one, what promises am I willing to make? As far as Simple Rev goes, I'll promise to give Simple Rev Local all my best for at least the rest of 2016. Another question, what's the price that you or others have paid for you being here tonight? Now, we're not actually gathered tonight, but if we were... um, Building something independent of me that I can't or don't want to control, all the opportunity costs that have come along with that, that's a really big cost to me. Being away from my family, uh, being away from Melinda and Grant and Clark and having them eat dinner by themselves when I'm out at a Simple Rev local gathering with you all, which I love, there's a cost. There are a lot of costs that I've paid for being with you here tonight. One more question. What price am I willing to pay? Now, in the context of Simple Rev, I'm willing to apparently pay a lot of my personal money, time, energy, and a fair amount of stress. There's more, but there's more questions here. Uh, Here's another good one. What is the promise I'm willing to make that constitutes a risk or major shift for me? I'd say that even if Simple Rev doesn't exist anymore someday, that I'm still going to bring people together locally and globally around the spirit and principles of simple living. I promise you that. And then last for now, what is the promise or commitment I'm unwilling to make? I'm unwilling to declare that I will gather people indefinitely for the rest of my life around simple living or community building. I mean, right now, I'm all about it. I love it. There's very little that I enjoy more. But Things change. I'm a multi-potentialite, and my passions, my interests, my skill set shifts over time. So I'm, uh, I'm willing to promise a lifelong pursuit of what I'm currently pursuing. This last conversation, the gifts conversation, you don't have to go sequentially. You probably shouldn't go sequentially. But the last one that I'm talking about here in this episode, the gifts conversation, it's my favorite. I love, love talking about people's gifts figuring out what they are, how to distribute them, how to acknowledge them, honor them, embrace them. That's partially because I'm way into ABCD, asset-based community development, of which Block and John McKnight have had a huge role in creating and promoting. These, just discovering these hidden gifts, people are desperate to show their community that they're valuable, that they have something to offer. They just need to make it known. They want to freely give it. How do we help them do that? So questions like these help us acknowledge our gifts, share our gifts. First one, what gift have you received from another in this room? And really what you want to do with this question, tell the person in specific terms. Now, I can't really answer this one literally because there's nobody in the room or the house with me as I record this episode. But I can say if you and I, just one-on-one, if we were together right now and I could look you in the face, I would say, I acknowledge and I'm grateful for your gift of time and attention for this episode and any other episode you've ever listened to or will listen to. Another gifts conversation question. What has someone in your community done today that has moved you or been valuable to you? Yet another, what gift do you have that nobody knows about? Here, I'm going to actually answer this one. I have the ability to clip my fingernails and toenails with the same baby fingernail scissors for 36 years running. And yes, I am 36 years old. Another one. See, I told you these questions could be fun. They're not all serious. What are you grateful for that has gone unspoken? 
This one is directly relevant. Magnus Skoenberg, who was a participant at the Simple Rev 2015 event, I told you that we've canceled our Simple Rev 2016 event. Uh, he offered to have a mini Simple Rev style gathering in Minneapolis on the same day that we would have had a Simple Rev 2016 event if it wasn't canceled. Wow. I am so grateful for that. I haven't spoken publicly about it. And Magnus, hat tip to you for even suggesting it. Who knows what will happen, but wow. Uh, Last question for now. What is it about your community that nobody else seems to know about? As far as Simple Rev goes, I want people to know that Simple Revers are almost universally genuine, generous, grateful, just freaking rad folks. I really, I really wish people knew the base level of trust and authenticity that people who embrace simple living all seem to have, almost without exception. Wow. So here's a little pro tip since we're talking about gifts. When we're telling people this, like if you and I were together and I'm looking you in the eyes and I'm telling you, you're awesome and here's why, that kind of stuff can get really awkward. Either receiving someone other's gratitude or owning our gifts um, even if it's private, you know, praise from others, it's really helpful to set up the gifts conversation if you're having it in community in a special way. When Block does this, he asks the person who hears about what they have just given another to say, hey, thanks. I like hearing that. Um, from my perspective, I've taken a liking to just a very genuine thank you. I receive that. And oftentimes, I'll actually put my hands over my heart. And when I say I receive that, as in your words, what you have just said are now a part of me. We want to let those statements sink in. We want to let those gifts be shared. We don't want to deflect appreciation from others. So let's break the routine of people denying their gifts. Let's break the routine of people shrugging off praise, genuine, grateful praise that they're getting for others. Uh, let's not encourage people to say, ah, someone else brought it out of me, or, oh, of course, you know, what a great group this is, or I, I just got lucky this time. Own it, people. Own your gifts. Own receiving other people's gifts. Tell them that you're grateful. Receive thanks. All right, so to recap the six conversations, according to Block, we have, you always start with the invitation, and then the next five can go in whatever order you feel is most appropriate possibility, ownership, dissent, commitment, and gifts. If you can think of any core community conversations that Block is missing that I haven't discussed, let us know in the show notes at joelsaslowski.com slash SASM100. I've never done a quasi-book review for a podcast episode before. This was kind of fun. Uh, I even wrapped in a case study in the middle of it and breaking down Simple Rev further for you. Did you, uh, did you dig it? Do you want me to do it again sometime? I gotta know, folks. Otherwise, I'm not sure what to give you that you really want. And maybe you even have a book, a talk, a video, something you feel is essential to get the most out of community. I would love to know. You can put that in the show notes as well. joelsoslowski.com slash SASM100. Alrighty. So once again, community. Celebration of Smart and Simple Matters 100th episode. You just got some sweet context for the importance of community, insight into pillars of community, my experiences asking questions with the power to transform in one of my favorite communities, Simple Rev. And uh, I'll admit it, there was a bit of dramatic reading in there, some silliness thrown in just for funsies. (laughs) But really, I I hope you're feeling celebrated. And I hope you're feeling my gratitude. We got to 100 episodes together. Oh, Uh, it was your ears, your shares, your reviews, comments, and encouragement. Those, those were the main reason why we got here. Now, if you need more before episode 101, you can find links to all the stuff I spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, more grooviness. Those are all in the show notes. joelsoslowski.com slash SASM100. You're also going to find info there about how to support me, this show, and our community. That, that is at joelsoslowski.com slash support. And I will say, there is a 0% chance that we will make it another 100 episodes without your support. 
So please go check out how you can help, encourage, and connect with others at joelzaslavsky.com slash support. If you want to show me that you're in community with me, whatever community that may be, spreadsheet enthusiasts, simple living advocates, minimalists, parents, whatever. If you want to show me for the first time or for the latest time, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at Joel Zaslavsky. You can find other ways to connect with me at uh, my contact page on my website. If you're stumbling, you're like, ah, dude, I think you're cool, but I don't, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to share with you. You can always send an email to joel at joelzaslavsky.com. Just tell me your full name and give me one personal detail that you think I should know about. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I want to leave you with this. You are not just a statistic. You are not just a listener. You are not just an email subscriber or a downloader. You are part of this community, and I value you. If you're feeling it too, give me a word up. Yeah, you can, you can actually say it. Maybe you're on the bus. Maybe you're on the run. Just say it. Just give me a little word up. Word up, Joel. You just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on.